Greetings and welcome to the Friday Morning Nameless channel. I'm Chad the Alcoholic and boy do I have a show for you. Uh, so <laughs> I've just recently started <laughs> doing random uh, uh, conversations and so far we have one in the, on the channel with Neil which was a great hit and so I thought I would get or ask on my day off work here a special guest to come on and uh, share some of his story and hopefully uh, ask. Uh, I put together some terrible questions, which are quite useless, but we'll see where they go. And uh, everybody, I'd like to say welcome to Pastor Paul Vanderclay from Sacramento, California. Well, it's a, it's a great honor to to be on the Friday morning nameless. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> so um, it is weird because like, I don't know. It's just, it's all weird, Paul. And these will be in some of the, these weird, useless questions that I have. Um, um, so thank you for taking the time. I was last minute. I literally asked you or actually, actually asked you yesterday and uh, not, not even thinking it would go through. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you for, for that. Yeah, it just, I mean, with COVID, it just my schedule's been so disrupted. And I thought, well, I could probably do it early morning tomorrow if I get out of bed. My wife decided to um, go to school. She's all masked up. She's got to be masked up all day at school. And I just think, oh, but you're, you're well acquainted with masks. At least your mask has a little hole right here. She could cut that, but I don't think the school would appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows what they appreciate and what they don't? Uh, um, who so knows? <laughs> okay um so uh okay so i have some questions there it took me a while to put them together um I, a lot of the the exercise in doing this randos thing is i'm really 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 bad at listening to others I'm, i can talk about myself ad infinitum and so i wanted to do this randos thing as a practice to engage with listening better because it's just so difficult for a self-centered bastard as such as myself and so i wanted to practice that so here are some questions if you're cool with that i'm i'm raring to go i'm, I'm hoping to get the skinny on all the good stuff the things that nobody has asked you and hopefully uh so we'll see it doesn't matter so questions questions for pvk right there can you tell us what it was, uh, what growing up as a PK was like? You know, the funny thing is that that was always, that was often talked about and noted in a, in a deep religious community like the Christian Reformed Church that I grew up in. But I haven't had a chance to grow up not as a PK. And my father grew up as a PK as well. So it wasn't something I thought a lot about. I, um, you know, looking back on it, I was very much sort of expected to, I don't know. I, my father was never a person who put a lot overtly on me. I was, I was given a great deal of freedom. I, I don't think I was ever expected, uh, overtly from my parents to go into the ministry or anything like that. I was often called Little Rev, so my father was called Rev in, in the community around his church, and uh, then I'd be called Little Rev, but I was his only son, so that's kind of normal. I also 
in our in our so in the Christian Reformed Church, traditionally you had a morning service and an evening service. And the evening service was supposed to be more like a teaching service. And so the, there was time for question and answer in that little evening service. And so I would listen to the sermon and I'd often have a question. And I'd do this as a child. And people, of course, thought that was unusual because children weren't expected to, in the Christian Reformed Church, children were expected to sit quietly, um, compliantly in the pews. I had difficulty with that too. Sunday Sundays were the day of the week I would more often get spankings and some someone can decide how that shaped my upbringing. But I I was always interested in theology. So but but it's also the case <laughs> that my unlike many people who grew up as ministers kids in the Christian Reformed Church Northside Chapel, where I grew up, was not a traditional Christian Reformed church. We were mostly African-American church. We were in an inner city context. Um, I went to the Dutch uh, Christian Reformed school. But I, I think for me, growing up as a minister's kid was very different from a lot of other children of ministers in the Christian Reformed church. It's also the case that in the Christian Reformed church, being a minister is a family tradition. There are many ministerial families in the Christian Reformed Church where father to son, father to son, father to son. They usually don't stay in the same congregation, but they do go into the ministry in the Christian Reformed Church, which I think is healthier than what you see sometimes in non-denominational churches where the church is sort of <coughs> the church is sort of the possession of the minister. And so like a family business, it gets passed down. And the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, they'll tend to be sons that'll go into ministry, but they'll, they'll very seldom be in the same church as their father. So I, you know, I'll never pastor at Northside Chapel, even though the church I do pastor is in some ways a little similar to Northside because it's a multi-ethnic racial reconciliation church, or at least was when it was founded. So I don't know if that answers your question, feel free to follow up. Yeah. So did you, what was it like, um, let's say was it was it normal or abnormal or kind of shocking to see your father in in um in service to the suffering in that it was, community? It was again it was normal because it's the only experience i don't you know it's like asking the question did you know you were poor growing up right. i just thought it was regular and it's only if you have these experiences that kind of make you think oh there's there's a there's sort of a game B out there and it could have been different. So to me, it was just normal. Now, now ministers, kids in the Christian reformed church sometimes have, and I think this is beyond the Christian reformed church, sometimes have a reputation of being rebellious that, um, you know, the minister's kid is a hellion. And there was one, there was one PK in the community in Northern New Jersey. I won't name him, but that guy was hell on wheels. And everybody knew it. And it's usually it's usually the kids of the really conservative firebrand preacher that tends to be hell on wheels. And what often happens, so now I'm 60 years old, so I've seen these kids grow up with me. What usually happens is there's kind of a cycle. Their parents are sort, the father was sort of a firebrand, fire and brimstone preacher. The kid's a rebel. When that kid grows up, they become just like the father. 
they, 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 I mean, it's a it's a temperamental quality. Now, my father was much more erratic, much more peaceful, much more you know, very much more winsome, and so I. I sort of grew up like the father too. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's just with these reactionary religious communities. If the father is a reactionary Christian, well, the son is going to react to the father sort of in psychological terms and differentiation terms, but usually we'll come right back and be like the father again. Daughters, not so much. I got a, I got an interesting email from the daughter of a conservative minister who found my channel and I knew her brother and she'd grown up in the Christian form church and she kind of grew up to be um, kind of a, a secular, secularish liberal or a mainliner. So it's different with daughters, but with sons, conservative firebrand, they kind of go through the cycle. Excellent. Beautiful. So, so you you say, you say your father was very on the ground in the trenches, carrying dynamically caring for others and then so would you say the did, did you have some sort of rebellious streak in you and that maybe that you early on would have ex exhibited some sort of maybe not conservative but like maybe um more like um uh, act, uh, uh, uh like an activist type um uh opposite the, of, of your father and then swing back or how did that go for you well, I think I, I think part of it was for me for a long time, I very much did not want to be a local church pastor. And so I was interested in theology and a lot of these kinds of philosophical theological ideas. <laughs> but I didn't want to be a local church pastor. So then I decided I'd be a um the the woman I was dating and then married, she very much wanted to be a foreign missionary. So that that seemed like a good a good thing to do. And that was adventurous and um and so I, I decided that I would I would do that. Um, I'll turn off the heat here. Mm. I, I don't heat the church when I'm here because that seems like a point to have a little space heater. But um, so so there was some there was some differentiation that I lived through that I did not want to be a local church minister. And after I came back from the mission field, I kind of needed a job, and um, found that. Uh, first, I thought, well, I can be a local church pastor. I, I, it's like I know how to do it. I watched my father do it. And then once I started doing it, I discovered I really liked it, <laughs> which was kind of a, a surprising thing for me. And, um, and you know, and that was that was something that I'd, I'd seen from my father, too. When I when I started pastoring here in Sacramento, I met a pastor who was towards the end of his career. And I remember at, at a little pastor, a little pastor lunch, it was a lunch after a meeting. I remember him saying, yeah, I told my son, the last thing he should ever do is be a minister because it's a, it's a terrible profession. It's a terrible job. You don't get paid much. You spend all your time, you know, serving ungrateful people. And all the <laughs> church does is bitch at you. <laughs> and I, I listened to that and I thought, I've never heard this out of my father. And my father pastored smaller churches, mission churches, churches without my father always made far less money than this guy. And I remember asking my father towards the end of his careers, well, dad, you've, you've been doing this all your life. And he says, I love it more today than the day I started. I thought, 
and and you know and and for me you know obviously part of that was just my father but um one of the things that i i grew to figure out i know i know you picked up my father's memoir um and you picked up a hard copy of it which is pretty hard to get actually because not that many of them were 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 made it was self-published um over there all right so one of the one of the things that I thought about was, you know, my father and the Christian Reformed Church sort of became a pioneer of racial reconciliation in Patterson, but he had no preparation for that in terms of experience with African Americans or anything like that. Because my grandfather's churches were all rural, Depression era, World War II era, Midwest churches where you wouldn't find a black person, maybe except being a porter on a train. And so then my father, you know, first as a seminary intern and then as a and then as a called minister, takes this call to Patterson, New Jersey, surrounded by emigrants from um, what Isabel Wilkinson calls the Great Migration up up north. And I thought, well, how did my father know how to minister to these people? And the truth is, he what my father knew how to do, which he learned from his father with without any African-Americans around was how to love people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're African-Americans, sometimes they're Dutch immigrants, sometimes, you know, people come in lots of different stories. And obviously loving and culture means there are going to be particularities. But if you learn to be um, a little bit sensitive and if you learn to listen and if you learn to pay attention, you can learn how to love people. And so, what my father did was he used that what he learned from his father, which was how to love people. And he just became good at loving people in Patterson instead of people that were living in rural areas in Wisconsin or Minnesota or Ontario, Canada and, um, or Iowa. And, uh, and so I, I guess I, I somehow picked up some of the same things that he did just from him. Beautiful. It almost sounds like um, it was much to his benefit that he didn't have the experience that maybe one would think that they should need or have in going into a particular situation. And sometimes the best, the best learning happens in the field, you know, like you could tell you write a book on how to do uh, racial reconciliation. You probably screw it all up, you know? Well, the people who only know it from the book, I mean, it's it's that whole Verveke, the other three Ps thing. There's there really isn't anything, any alternative then. I mean, I I've known many alcoholics, mm-hmm. but I will never know it from the inside like you do. I That's never will. listening to you talk about it. <laughs> I say that with great love. Well, that's why I think it's one of the Whatever this is that's happening um, over the last several years, it's it's in many ways a miracle, and I think that's the relationships that um, that you the, the the attitude that you have fostered or modeled or whatever it is that we're doing has been very 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 helpful, and so we're able to kind of as best we can say, oh, did you see? I like I like the idea of show and tell. It's like, oh yes, I have, you know, and so that's been very, very beautiful. So, uh, would you say that you like 
pastoring today more than you did when you started? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that. Now, it's... So, my father grows up on the plains and pastors in Patterson. I grew up in Patterson pastoring in a church, and I begin to pastor people via the internet and Zoom and YouTube. One of the things that I've noticed is that some people are excited to, oh boy, it's really, people are really complex. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in church want to keep the pastor kind of at arm's length. And for good reason, because letting someone into your life, it's something you really have to be careful with, especially if they have a degree of power and influence in a community that you're deeply embedded in. So in a church, to a degree, people tend to keep pastors, many people, not all, many people tend to keep pastors at arm's length. They're not quite sure if they can really trust them with good reason. Other people, other people are just open books and they'll, 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 they'll tell their stuff to anyone willing to listen. There, the, what I've learned about the internet is that it's a different dynamic and I'm still trying to get my head around it because people will in some ways be more transparent on the internet because I mean, they can they can tell me. This is sort of where where therapists sometimes have an advantage too. You go into this nondescript office of a therapist. You sit down. The therapist is under a pretty significant financial obligation not to disclose, and also has very little personal interest in using anything they learn in their office out in their regular life because there's sort of a firewall between it. Now, now all of that stuff is set up pretty well, and for good reason. But a, but a pastor is embedded in the same community, and so people understand that intuitively, whether they articulate it or not. And so they're a little more careful around the pastor. There's in in the CRC. There's this saying that's actually from the Dutch. The Dutch have all these crazy sayings. It's really funny. But I, I only know har- hardly any of them. But, the, you know, when there's a pause in the conversation, there's this old Dutch saying that basically says the, the domini, the minister just walked by, which means that everyone in the church is under a conspiracy to never let the minister really know what they're thinking or what's going on. And <laughs> think about that. And and that that isn't fully the case either, because at the same time, people will sometimes walk into your office and say the most jaw-dropping things that you never would imagine. That happens too. And so you live in these, you live in this strange world between it. Whereas on the internet, it's more like a therapist in that someone can come on and tell me that they can just sort of completely disclose what they're thinking and what they've done and what's been done to them with very little consequence because they might never meet me in real life. Odds are nobody else in their life actually listens to me. And so I'm the perfect one to hold a secret because I'd have to work really hard if I wanted to, to 
to hit their reputation with anyone they know or care about. So in, in that way, there's an advantage to ministry via the internet because people sometimes don't play as many games as they do in real life. Because in real life, they're gaming. They're going to tell you something, but they're going to tell it in a certain way because they've got their reputation and their community to consider. It's really subtle and complex. Whereas on the internet, it's like, I'll I'll tell the pastor that I've been, you know, I've been doing these sex acts with my dog. Um, because, you know, well, he's, I'm, you know, I'm not going to have him record it and I'm not going to, you know, and, and so then it's weird because then it's like, okay. Um, and, and so there's a, there's an advantage to that, but there's also a certain amount of artificiality to it too. So it's, it's very strange when you look at it with all of its subtleties. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, yeah, and there, there's levels of. Uh, I was talking with a, a gentleman yesterday about perhaps some of the reasons we don't discuss things with those in our life who are close with us, like our pastor, or we have all these. When I'm in that mode, that fearful place, it's just a house of mirrors full of justifications on why I shouldn't and what will happen if and what if I don't and, and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, so I can give you, uh, um, I'll give our listeners here an example of a moment that was powerful on the internet that I was not able to have in person. And so it was, this was um, two years ago. It was uh, just after Thanksgiving. Uh, my father-in-law was in, uh, a hospital and in a coma or a coma and um, the doctors were saying he's going to die prepare and prepare to pull him off and all this stuff and meanwhile my wife's um, brother and family they were all talking all the time which is very interesting for me because my family really doesn't do this sort of thing so watching them go through this and stuff and uh, I was sitting actually on the other side of this table and I was talking with you um, and you had prayed with me for him. And now I was in a church at that time, but in a very small church too. So much so that I think the, the reverse can happen where the pastor of the small church, for some reason, will not or cannot reach out to his parishioner. And he did not pray with us, nor did he call us. And for whatever reason, I don't know. I really don't care. But that was a deeply powerful moment. I remember I wept. Um, I, I don't know if you wept either. I can't remember. All I know is that it was an impactful moment. So that's something, too, where um, it wasn't necessarily that I had anything to hide that I can talk about. But you were available and you reached out and you, you did this love thing that you're talking about. And I think that's why the people... Well, it's one of the many reasons why we like you, but I mean, that was one of these experiences that was just powerful that, and I've had a lot of these on, on the online space where some of the, the deepest, um, more meaningful conversations that I have had with people have been just sitting in these conversations. And honestly, I wonder if that is something I would even really want in my real life setting on a regular basis. It is very expensive 
So Estuary is nice for this because I think Estuary provides that space and that arena to have that. But you can't, we should not do this all the time. It's just it's t- too much. So. No, I think that's right. And it's, you know, I've seen local ministry and local churches, you know, really do well with this. And and I think generally they do. But the internet is carving out a space for others that makes this available. And it's it's just sort of hard to figure out general rules or patterns about this. But you know, you're 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 right. And I'm still trying to sort of get my head around it because yeah, yeah. you know, I, I have you know relationships with people in the local church here too. And it's 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 just different. And I it's I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh so maybe I'll shoot off to another question. I don't know. I got like 14 of them, so probably won't get to them all. <laughs> but who knows? I talk too long. I, I give paragraph I answers. So. Beautiful. Wonderful stuff. Okay. What's your general understanding of faith? Faith is taking an actionable risk because you trust. Faith is taking an actionable risk because you trust. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah, so that kind of, the second question was, how do you experience faith? So I don't know if you can expound on that. Well, you know, I don't don't necessarily see myself as a person of great faith. I don't really. And I think that's probably because I've seen more people around me who you will never see on a on on the internet who 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 have greater faith than i do they they trust in the lord and because they trust in the lord they do things which people in the world might think are unwarranted or irresponsible or risky but um in the end it is faithful and sometimes it plays out and sometimes it doesn't. I see people I see people make bad decisions on behalf of faith too sometimes and I it's it's a it's a really it's a really tricky it's a really tricky thing. You know, it's analogous but it's certainly not equal to. It's analogous to let's say voting for a political candidate because when you vote for a political candidate, you have no idea what this person is going to do. And maybe you have faith in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, or you have faith in the person's profession as a Christian or the person's ability to generate wealth or you know something or another. But you then vote for someone. And you know, one of the one of the one of the one of the moments of greatest faith that people have are let's say getting married getting married is a decision of incredible faith because you don't know what that other person's going to become having a child deciding to have a child now i none of our children were planned 
my wife and I didn't like sit down with a calendar say we're going to make a baby now. Now we uh we decided to do something else and babies were made, but no. um maybe that's TMI for the internet. What's that? Was there, is there going to be chocolate? <laughs> I would say in most cases there was no chocolate involved. Um <laughs> but you know, deciding to have a child is an act of great faith. And so faith isn't, religious faith is a subset of much more common faith, apart from which no life can be had in this world. Mm. That's, yeah, that, that, that reminds me of some other literature that I'm very familiar with. Talks about that, about how faith is... Well, in some sense, we've always been practicing, all of us have always been practicing faith. And if life, there wouldn't be life without it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. I mean, the example is like, whatever, simple, as simple as whatever, turning on the, the light switch, you know, that's an act of faith, you know, you know whatever. So that's, it, when I realized that it was like, oh, the, the, what, what, yeah, what you guys gave me, what the the corner has given me is uh, all these really great examples and different perspectives, um, and then and and their practices <clears throat> to be able to to um, to to try on for size ones, and it's been such a rich experience. So that's been pretty cool. Um, okay. As you can see, I'm doing a great job as a You're doing a great job. I think I think people are gonna love this this interview because you're asking you're asking good questions and you're asking questions that I don't often get asked. So keep going. All right. So do you have a favorite or most impactful passage from the Bible? What is it and why? I think I know what it is, but go ahead. I think you know more than I do. I well the way it works for me is is usually um Something will happen in life, and because I have lived with the Bible for so long, a passage will sort of emerge in my mind, you know, in this Peterson way of, well, we don't know where it comes from, and a lot of people say, well, that's from the Holy Spirit, or a passage will will emerge in my mind, and, um, and then I'll, I'll ponder on that passage while... You know, the, an example of it was just the, the video that I wound up putting on Saturday. I didn't have a rough draft for Saturday. So that video was a little rough draft-ish where I'm listening to I'm listening to um to Chris Williamson and Constantine Kissin and what they're talking about. It's I'm just talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Um I I don't know if I have a favorite passage. There certainly are stories that I go back to often and they and they they make me think. One of the one of my one of the passages that really interests me is um Luke 16. It's right on the heels of you know one of the one of the most popular, most well-known, most beloved parables Jesus tells, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And whether or not people get that right, they they generally adore that parable. And then Jesus gives a parable which people have been debating 
forever. And there's a verse that comes a little after it that's really hard to translate. And it's the parable of this, of this, of this corrupt steward, where there's this guy, he's working for a king, let's say, or a powerful man, and he's been embezzling. And mm. The and and he and the king learns that he's embezzling, and he learns that the king learns that he's embezzling. But the strangest thing happens because, generally speaking, if you just if you're if let's say you own a business and you learn that your accountant is embezzling, you you don't tell anybody. You go in there and you take the books and you grab him and you give him to the cops. You don't give him any time because what that guy does is what any crooked accountant would do with his time which is like oh crap the jig is up what am i going to do and so then this guy goes around to all of the king's debtors and says so you all the you all the guy you all you know you owe him two million dollars i'm cooking the books i'm gonna make it one million remember me and he goes around to all these debtors doing this and and then that gets back to the king that uh, guess what? Your uh, your accountant who has learned that you know that he he knows that you know that he's been cooking the books. He's gone down and he's halved all of the records of of these other people's debts to you. And and again, what you expect, you get the parable of the you know the ungrateful, forgiven steward who was forgiven for talents of debt. And he's thrown to be tortured until he pays back every cent, which he never will. And this king just laughs and says, wow, I love this guy. And everybody's like, but, uh, 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 what, what does this mean? And I like Kenneth Bailey's interpretation of it, which, which is that the, 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 the irony is that the crooked accountant believed in the reputational zealotry of the king more than he did in his own capacities. And, and to me, this is a story of astounding faith, not faith in oneself, but faith in the God of the universe. Mm -hmm. and, and it's such a subtle, mysterious parable. And you know, I, you know, part of part of what's deceptive about the internet is that I can on the internet make myself out to be a smart man, a wise man, a good man, a great man. And I can, I can, I can, I can fool all of y'all by my embellishing my profilicity. I can do that. And to a degree, we all bullshit each other. Jordan Peterson said it well years ago when he talked about lying pastors. You should talk about lying politicians because it's they they <laughs> lie just like pastors do. Anyway, I I think finally, and this is this is where you know when I talk about Calvinism that people always sort of. It's, all kinds of people, you know, a lot, a lot of people who consider themselves Calvinists listen to me and say, he's not a real Calvinist. I'm not a real Calvinist. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, Sam and Luke will say, when Paul talks about Calvinists, he's just talking about all Christians. I said, well, that's the only Christianity I knew was the Calvinism I grew up with. But, but Calvinism is all about finally 
trusting in God more than I trust in me and trusting in God's righteousness more than I trust in my righteousness and trusting in God's goodness more than I trust in my goodness and trusting in God's smarts more than my smarts and all of that. It's finally this, this, this final abandonment to the goodness of God because I realize just how corrupt I am. You know, I am I am not that far from this corrupt accountant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and part of the most embarrassing thing about being a pastor on the Internet is people say nice things about me. And it's really lovely to hear people say nice things about me. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is lovely. But it is, it is also partly embarrassing because there's plenty about me that is not a hero. There's plenty about me that is not good. And there's plenty and there's there's many people who who know me better than any of you know me who have plenty of honest, true things to say about me that aren't good. Ways, you know, places that I've stumbled in my life, ways that I fail others in my life, ways that I'm selfish, ways that I'm sinful. All of that is true of me. And so my my hope is not so much in my own righteousness, but in God's goodness. And so to me, that's Calvinism. That, that is at the heart of Calvinism. And that's why I consider to continue to identify as a Calvinist. And, and I'm not saying that other traditions in Christianity don't have that, but that's just what I understand Christianity to be. And it's always come to me with the tag Calvinism in it. And so that's yeah. why. And so that ver- that, that story, that one of Jesus' stories is a, is a special one for me because if I think, you know, if that king can sort of admire the crooked accountant, even for his dastardly things, you know, maybe God can, you know, forgive me of my sins and uh, welcome me into his kingdom. So beautiful. Yeah. I'm thinking about, because uh, I have some similar tensions around, uh, um, uh, in, in, in the community, the small community that I'm uh, involved with in the recovery community, uh, you know, especially a, a couple of years ago when I was far, far more active, um, uh, when I was in a season of like super harvest all the time, all the time, you know, the new guys would all be like, oh my God, I just love you, just blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, but you don't, you don't know what's in here. And, you know, you don't know. And like, so sometimes if I'm not, if I'm not um, grounded or tethered to um, some, some, especially I'm really on this, this kick about practices, um, uh, ritual practice, things that are, that help to keep me tethered, even though I know the truth about me and what they might say and how they conflict. It's like, it's, it's just, just like, okay, it's fine. Like, they're just people, too. They don't know everything, and, and we're all a, a mess. So, like, yeah, so I think, like, I wonder, I was, I guess I'm wondering, does the, 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 the fact of knowing the truth about yourself and how you are more like the accountant and, um, and how the, the people on the Internet praise you, does that help keep you closer to him, to, to Christ? In some sense, like um, so that things don't get too out of whack, or well, I think quite the opposite. I think actually, 
you know, people often ask me, well, how do you stay so grounded? And the answer is because I, just like you said, I, I pastor a local church. You know, people can, I, I don't even know why people get excited because the only, the, the people who get excited about a channel with 27,000 subscribers usually have less than that. Um, anybody who's got six figure subscribers looks at 27,000 subscribers and it's like, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's hardly a thing. So it's all this weird scale and, you know, and I, and so a couple, a few weeks a year, I go out into the world and I get to be a celebrity where I get to go to Europe and I get to go to Chino and I get, you know, and people are all real nicey, nicey and want to talk to me and yada, yada, yada. And then I come home and it's like, you got to scoop up, you got to scoop up the dog shit in the yard. And, you know, that bathroom tile is still a mess. Why haven't you fixed that? What kind of a husband are you? Um, And, you know, so it's the, the internet celebrity and all of this stuff, even the, to this very small degree that I have it, I look at that stuff with a whole lot of suspicion because I think, this can take you, this can yeah. have you, and this can, this can destroy you. And so I'm, I'm super leery of, I'm super leery of applause. You know, I've my friend Rod Hugan, who's been on the channel just a few times, he calls them the clapping gods. You know, you got to <laughs> really be careful of those clapping gods. So I, um, I'm, I'm happy that I I'm only part time on the internet and I'm, you know, most of the time anybody who anybody who who sees most of my life will look at this and say, This this is our this is our model, this is the ideal work you're trying to be like. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I yeah, I totally, I totally and honestly, I wouldn't even it's weird because I wouldn't even consider you a celebrity. It's it's some it's a different category. It's not celebrity. It's just something. It, I think it's this kind of this. I think it's actually a little more new than we have really language to describe whatever this is. It is relational. There is an aspect of the old the old blue church celebrity, but not much. Yeah. There's not a lot there. Uh, but yeah, you know it's. But you're right. I mean. All this, what's most important is like, yeah, are you, what's going on at home? You know, are you cleaning up the dog shit or the leaves or are you, you know, are you doing the dishes? Cause like, it sure seems like that stuff's important. And, and that I do struggle with that uh, um, a little bit. Uh, well, a lot actually. Just well, to be you honest. know, and I mean, you have it too, because, you know, there are hierarchies always, hierarchies always develop. And so in a, even in our little corner, there are hierarchies. And Chad the alcoholic is a known name. And, you know, Paul knows Chad. And you know what? There's a lot of people who've been striving to get Rando's conversations. And truth is, now, you know, you, I mean, now you're, you're also, I mean, you're also in the, I mean, you're also in the, uh, the supporter section. And I gave out my cell number. And so you texted me and, I know that there's a whole list of people who some of the people are going to watch this and say, you know, Vander Clay said he was going to talk to me and Chad just strolls in and Chad gets a talk. And, you know, and the truth is human relationships are such that 
I know you to a degree. And, you know, when you had your denim dinner, I, you know, it's like, gosh, it'd be so much fun to get to Wisconsin. I'd so love to go and have dinner with Chad and CW and Grizz and there, there's already a hierarchy. And so, you know, yeah, I might have my little exalted position, but you got yours too. And, you know, and so it's, oh, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard. This is why everybody should get married. I'm just, not Maybe not everybody, but. My wife keeps me grounded. <laughs> By the way, she's like, really, Chad? Like, dude, go do, go do the the lawn or something. You know, yeah, she doesn't give a shit, to be quite honest. <laughs> she's like, that's real nice. You go, uh, yeah, your friends are going to come over. And then when Grizz wasn't sure if he was going to make it, she told me, she said, you better come. So I want to meet this guy. And I, I'm still... I think that that particular event, that the dinner that we had here at this table, I'm looking forward to see the long, the long term. Uh, I mean, not tell us. That's the wrong word for it. But like, where? Do, what did? It, what did it really mean? And what did it really do? Because yes, it was beautiful sitting around here, and like we had the estuary meeting, and then afterwards we had a little just a free flowing conversation about prayer and different things. And it was beautiful to meet all these different people and wrestling with meeting people I hadn't met before. And they terrified me on the phone and stuff. And, and But then, but then watching what different people are going through right now after the fact has been very interesting to me. And I, I don't know if the dinner had anything to do with that or not, but to see what did it really mean? You know, was it just that night? Or what does it look like in 20 years for somebody personally? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and this, I mean, we're running this giant experiment in the corner. We really are. And we're, we're fortunate in that we've got lots of different aspects to this experiment, which are really interesting in that. So Peugeot, you know, Jonathan now has a degree of celebrity that I don't certainly, I mean, I'm not daily wires, not come to me and ask me to do a, a series about the end of the world. And what's that? It's their loss, by the way. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, and, and John Verveke is never going to do a series for daily wire. That's, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I, I don't know if I'd want to do a series for daily wire at all. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a tweet, but, but we have the, the, I've said it many times. Um, the most, I think the most important and beautiful things about the corner are, you know, the denim dinner and the virtually not alone and the Chino gathering and these and, and the estuary, you know, estuary meetings. These are, these are the things, you know, you know, someday, let, let's say I've got a video right now that just doesn't seem to die in terms of YouTube and it just keeps going on and on and on. I watch the end. I watch the just sort of like I had when I had a thousand subscribers and I looked at that and I thought, should I shut this down? So there's this one video right now that every day it's getting, um, you know, it's getting another few more thousand views. And I just think. I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like this because what happens is that 
things happen. And so, okay, let's say one of my videos really does go viral and certain people in mainstream media pick it up. And, you know, the truth is that it was a combination of things that made Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson. Um, and let's say something happens to me and I go from having really a smallish channel with, with, you know, a few thousand people that are watching into a far larger channel with a few million people that are watching, you know, and then, and then you might say, yeah, you know, Paul Van, I knew Paul Vanderclay. I had a cell phone number and I wanted to talk with Paul and, and then you might say, I can't do that anymore because Paul's now, you know, beneath a pile of of demands, et cetera, et cetera. But the things that matter are the denim dinner and the prayer that we got to share. And these are the things that matter more than the celebrity, more than, it's not more than, it's just, it's just, Again, it's it's personal and it's it's really hard to talk about, kind of get your mind around, but that's why to me, you know, what's happening. I mean, somebody somebody said in a comment section, and now I know why you're always, you know, pushing Grim Grizz on your channels because he's pushing you. And I'm thinking, yeah, because <laughs> I I'm getting I'm getting a lot of subs because Grim Grizz is pushing me. You know, it's just you know, he's got 20, he's got 20 people in most of his live streams. And that's not, I, I wish he had 20,000 people. I do. Cause you know, I, I think Grizz is a genius and I, and I really enjoy him and I really love what he's doing, but you know, I no the reason I talk about Grim Grizz is because thousands of people are going to look at Grim Grizz and they're going to be like, and then they're going to go on with life. They're just going to go on. But there are these few people out there that are going to connect and they're going to find a friend and they're going to build a little group of friends. And those little groups of friends are going to be really important to them, not just for the few minutes of a video, but for years and decades. You know, I look at what's happened. So I was just this morning, I was watching Grail Country with um, with Nate and um and he was talking to Rafe Kelly and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, no, there's, there's been relationships that have been built, you know, Sherry, Jess. I mean, we all, we all, we all know the names and we know each other. And these are the, these are the things that really matter in this corner that, Friendships have been made and these friendships have now been sustained for five, six years. And they're weird friendships because they're via the internet, but they're not only on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so that's, to me, when I see that, I say, uh, this, this is what counts. Cause now I'm going to, now I'm going to make a religious turn because I'm going to say, there's going to come a day when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And the 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 mountains and, and all of the superficiality of this world will will evaporate because the truth is history does that anyway. The age of decay evaporates all of this stuff. And but the relationships that are built between the people, 
the people are more durable than money, which means that relationships are more durable than money, than the money and all of these other things. And I think, therefore, what we are building in this little corner will be a far greater value than what most of the world looks at as having value. And so again, for me, you know, when I, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, my channel has 27,000 subscribers. <laughs> ah! No, I say, you know what? Grim Grizz is streaming this morning and Chad dropped in and Ups dropped in and, you know, and Dolly came in and, you know, and Nate and Sherry had a talk with Rafe and they began to find each other in this talk. And yeah, it might just be one talk and, you know, life will go on, but maybe a friendship will develop and that friendship is going to bring real value and love and joy and meaning into each other's lives. To me, there's there's the payout. There's the payout. Yeah, and everybody's kind of bringing like their own little their own little, you know, like when you're at a camp or say we're all at a campground and everybody has a job. The job is um so you're going to bring your own place to stay, you're going to make your own tent, yada yada, but um in your downtime, I would like you to bring uh a little twig. Go find a twig somewhere that we can make this fire with. And so that is the thing we're all bringing this something to the fire because it's 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 bringing a light to us um so when when i think about this i think about um kind of like what uh, bill wilson and bob uh bob bob holbrook's holbrook smith and all of the other people involved in the formation of alcoholics anonymous a complete accident by the way these were not professionals they're just drunks and they were working on something. They tripped over something that the doctors could not find. And that so much so that the doctor had to say, holy shit, what did these guys find? And that is like, and so much so that it continues to grow and it changed, it changed the world mostly for the better. Yeah. And it, and it didn't just change the world in that alcoholics were no longer drinking anymore. That now, now that's a huge thing. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, that's a huge thing. Huge. But the, the amazing thing about it is that's just the start. Right. Of transformation. And mm -hmm. that's what I saw with my friend, Neil, who I know I came to this church and I met Neil. And remember the first time I met Neil, Neil was this enormous man. He was enormous. And I was sitting in this restaurant interviewing for this job in the church, not knowing anything I was getting into. And I see this enormous man come bounding in. He's holding these books and he's super happy to see me. And he sits down and he's just basically on his face. He's like, we're going to be best friends. And I thought whenever <laughs> people walk into something, it's like, oh, <laughs> but, but we became great friends. And, you know, and he had been, you know, he, he, for, for many years, AA had been his deal. I mean, he had done all of the work and he had gotten to a point in it and he said, you know, I, 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 I need to, I need to have this in the rest of my life too. And that's why he started going to church and he went to this crazy little church with all kinds of problems, but he, he, he found what, what he loved about the church 
is that he found in the church a place where he had the opportunity to love other people. And that's really the key of the church. People don't understand that. People pick the church like consumers. I want a church that believes exactly what I believe and have programs and have the right music. And that's why they pick their churches. And it's like, no, you don't understand. The church is a place where you get a chance to love somebody. And that's, well, you might say, well, what what, what lack of possibility do I have to love people? It's like, well, very little, actually, because there's a tremendous amount of people around you that need to be loved, including the people at work and at home and at all of these places. But the, the, the glory of church is getting a chance to love other people because it is better to give than to receive. Someone once said that. What was his name? I don't know. I think um, it was a, a craftsman. <laughs> I think or a craftsman. Tectonic of some sort. <laughs> so yeah. I, and so that's where, you know, he taught me a lot. So maybe if I get all the wrong stuff about AA, you can blame Neil, but maybe I just didn't listen well. But he, you know, I saw through him how this program saved his life. You know, it mm -hmm. saved his life. He was a, he was living in Alaska, selling insurance. And the thing about drunks in Alaska, and there's a lot of them, basically, is he, you know, a lot of times they they fall into a snowdrift and they just expire and you don't find them till spring. I mean, <laughs> and he knew that. And so, yeah. and and with his, you know, with his, I mean, he he lost his marriage, he lost his business. I mean, and he eventually took a second wife that he had met in the program, which of course isn't supposed to happen, but it happens all the time. Um, you know, and, but he, and he always was, you know, he ate, he over ate, he bought too many cameras. He wasn't great with, it. I mean, he just had an addictive personality, yeah. but he didn't drink and he learned to love. And, you know, he, he taught me a lot about living and about loving. And he taught me a lot about what was important in life. And, you know, all this you, internet celebrity or fame and money, these things pass. But the relationships, they're yeah. really something. Yeah, actually, when you mentioned that he uh, had, that your friend had this obsession with uh, screwdrivers, <laughs> I immediately thought, that is brilliant because... You know, we give away these coins, you know, one year, two year, whatever. And I was thinking the, a way cooler gift would be a screwdriver. <laughs> you know, like, because what alcoholic doesn't love screwdrivers? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what he was doing. His poor wife, she's clean because she's cleaning out the house and she finds this huge box of screwdrivers and she calls me and she says, you know, what you don't want to find when you're cleaning out the house of an alcoholic are all these bottles that he's, he never really gave up. You know, he just got really more secret in his drinking. No, that wasn't the case. He just kept collecting and his poor wife had to deal with his collections. It's this menacing box of screwdrivers. What does it mean? <laughs> I myself doing that, having this brilliant idea of I'm going to collect screwdrivers and give them away like a give, give away coins. And then Never get around to doing it. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know how much more time we have, but I have a while. So I, if you want, I have a couple more questions. I, if you want. 
Is that cool? That's cool. I can go. I should be able to go till half past the hour. What time is it now? It's ten ten here. So it's oh, got twenty minutes. Okay. Um. Okay. Here we go. This is. I like this one a lot. If you were, if you met your twenty-year-old self, what would he say to you? Oh, oh, what would he say to me? You should probably say, "You really did manage to marry a hot woman." <laughs> oh, that's such a nice. My twenty-year-old self wasn't having any luck. <laughs> Five kids. What? Uh, okay well what would you say to him When they when they tell you to start putting money in the four hundred three b when you just get that job, do it. <laughs> nice. I love the practical answers here. I love this. <laughs> okay, so I, I think it's safe to say that uh, you you probably coined the term the end of modernity. Can you give us your insights as to what that means? and or to what's to come well i you know there's a thesis running around out there that it's basically about every every 500 years there's a major cultural turn in the west and we're in one of those periods now and these things take a long time actually um they're very big and slow but You know, you, you can see it in the little dust up between James Lindsay and Jonathan Peugeot. And I watched Benjamin Boyce's talk with both of them. And I think Jonathan Peugeot can see James Lindsay's situation better than James can see Jonathan's. The, the world that I grew up in, in the 60s and 70s, where there was there was a monoculture you know there were always fringes but there was a there was a monoculture um and that was breaking down already with the counterculture but um it was things are things are really you know i i look at it with covid um you know i i i tend to believe that you know could very well be that this virus was there was a gain of function research and this virus got out and you know now it's out there but i'm also not skeptical that it is a virus and it can be deadly usually for elderly people who are susceptible to you know they're really dying of covid or they're dying of old age and covid puts them over the edge you know and that doesn't really matter but we are living in different worlds and 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 the different worlds it just shows you that these worlds that we're living in are our constructs mm -hmm. that that we have that we need to their maps that we have to create in order to live in the world because of combinatorial explosiveness and all these kinds of things. 
And and we didn't see that before. We we before we just saw no, that's reality. And so that's sort of this naivete of a monoculture. And that comes in various different sizes. I, I think in some ways Christians had an advantage in late modernity because increasingly we we were already sort of living in two cultures. I mean, if you were sort of fundamentalist or conservative evangelical, you 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 increasingly felt the tensions between the monoculture and your little subculture, even though your culture can be a monoculture too. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happening now is that on a worldwide scale, these things are breaking down. And I would love to say that these kinds of transitions are wonderful and glorious and will mean great things. But generally speaking, in human history, these kinds of transitions are really hard on people. Um, And I think this transition will be the same. I think it's going to be, I think there will be, there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars and there will be plagues and there will be collapses of various things i and i don't think there's a way around it but then you have to sort of bring in c.s lewis's life in an atomic age and say but when hasn't there been right this this we live in the age of decay you can you know you can watch all the um Huberman you want about drinking water in the morning and getting lots of light and you know doing the doing the sauna and you know you you can do all of these things to max out your health yada 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 and then in some mindless moment you take a step in a road and bang you're done (laughs) that's that's how life in this world is has always been and so for that reason the vast majority of people in the world have said this world is nested within a bigger reality Mm-hmm. And um, and as a Christian, I I have an optimistic view of that larger reality and the one who governs it. And so that actually, I think, affords me not only a control axis, as James Lindsay calls it, but it also affords me an optimism that says, Whatever, whatever game God is playing with this world, and, you know, you look at the book of Job and it's sort of like trading places where you know, I bet you a dollar, um, you know, that Job will, Job will hang in there. And we look at that and say, how dare you to play games with Job and his life and his family? Now, I, I think the book of Job, um, you know, I, I don't think it, I don't think it suggests that God is um, cruel, cruel or uncaring with respect to our lives, but it does suggest that there are things at play which we will never understand. We are finally just small human beings who can only know so much. And, you know, I'm sure with your LSNET meeting, you've heard John Van Donk talk about sort of being at rest in the hands of God. And, yeah. um, and that it's that it's that posture that that Job, that is the faith of Job. And so I I think modernity is ending. And I think there's going to be, I, I think, you know, we've had a, in the United States, in many ways, we've had a wonderful run 
since the end of the Second World War. Yeah, we've had we've had wars. There's Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iran Iraq War, et cetera, et cetera. But we've had we've had prosperity and security and um as much amusement and diversion as any human being in the world has ever been given. And so we've we've had a we've had a wonderful life. But it's yeah, things couldn't get things are gonna get bumpy. Things right. are gonna get bumpy. And not only that, but more than we could want to be given or imagine we could be a given. Yeah. I mean so just quickly, the thing about Job, this is just a weird little uh, image that came to mind, especially listening to Sherry and Jess talking about it. I, I always have these images that flash forward, uh, flash up about what some of this means. And I always think, like, I have this image in my mind of, like, so you have kind of like the screw tape letters, right? You have Wormwood, and he punches in for the clock for the job. His job is to go and do his tempting. And God says to him, well, what about, have you considered my my friend, my man Job over here? He's like, what? Okay. So it was never about the bet. It was about changing Wormwood's heart. That's what I think. And then he just says, oh, shit, I quit. I'm out. And then, bang, in comes the new Wormwood and says, oh, I'm punching in for the job. And then God just keeps doing that. <laughs> it's a fun image to think about because what it can do for me is, it, it, it's a, that image to me is supposed to orient me into what I what I hope I can do with the wormwood that I run into, you know, which is the guy inside here and or the enemy or whatever it may be. So I think that's also what I love about the about these biblical narratives. And I don't even understand. I get I could sit here for a day and try to explain what happened to me in, in my experience, but it makes no sense. It's illogical. It doesn't have, there's no reason. It's all, it was all on his time. It has everything to do with every, every moment of my life leading up to this moment where the truth was revealed and the truth was, Chad, it's none of your business. Here's what you get to do. Something like that. I don't know, something like that. And that was very helpful. Um, also, a great pain in the ass. <clears throat> uh, um, uh, what? What? One last. Uh, I got one. One. Two more questions. Um, how has How has your experience with C.S. Lewis as being Virgil? How has that manifested for you? How has he been your Virgil in your quest? Yeah. 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 Well, he's, you know, anybody who's watched the channel closely can probably see that he is a regular. He is a regular on my channel. And I just watched the uh, Jason Baxter conversation with Marcus, which was, which was, which was really wonderful. Um, I try not to, you know, chase down every author of every book that I get excited about. Maybe I'll have him on sometime. I don't know. I'd, I'd rather, I like the situation where Mark, Mark goes and or Nate finds them or someone like that because I don't I think it's I think it's good that we distribute the relationships um but I you know I was just in England I mean I this I've I've been given my father never visited Europe I think he would have loved to have gone and 
my father died in 2013 of a heart attack right out of the blue. I mean, nobody expected it. And his, he had had a, he had had a, he had fainted a month before. And so then he had a cardiologist and his doctor and they ran a, they, they had a, they had a, um, a thing on him for a month to, you know, monitor his heart and that came back and it was all good. And then my father just drops dead. And the doctor's like, I have no idea why this happened. And, um, but if my father had been alive, my father would have just loved the opportunities that I've been given. I mean, I had the second trip to England and, and then just, I just said, I'd like to go to Oxford and, and a lovely, a lovely family contacts me and says, you know, my husband told me I should definitely, you know, write you and we have a room you can stay in and we'll, you know, we're both Oxford alums. We'll show you around. And, you know, she drove me out to C.S. Lewis's grave and Tolkien's grave and C.S. Lewis's church. And, and my father would have loved that because he loved Lewis and he loved Narnia and he loved all of these things. And he never got a chance to go there and be there and do that. And so Lewis has been a, um, has been a, a Virgil to me and has sort of been with me through the Peterson journey. And, um, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's a strange, strange thing that, you know, here's this man and he was a strange man in many ways. Lewis was a strange man. He, he was missing a joint in his thumb or something that meant he could never do sports very well. And, you know, it's, he never learned to drive. I mean, it's an odd, odd man who who had a difficult life. You know, his mother dies when he's six. And when you when you read, you know, surprised by joy, and you you just you just read about this this six year old just terrified because all of the adults are having these hushed conversations in the house and he doesn't know why. And the main thing was he was as a six year old, he was sick while his mother was sick. And all he wanted was for his mother to come and comfort him when his mother can't come because she's dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, and, and all of this happens through, not through the internet in this case, but through books so, so the internet is, is a new thing and it's a strange thing, but we've had similar analogous situations through books. And so, no, it's, um, it, it's weird how we can have mentors that we've never met and the mentorship can come through, through writing. And of course, Lewis knew that better than anyone else. And Baxter really brings that out wonderfully in his books, The Medieval World of C.S. Lewis. So I, I just, I feel, I just feel. Chad, I just feel so richly, richly blessed. And, you know, you've been part of that blessing. Um, so many other people have been part of that blessing. And, you know, I do wish that, you know, my father, uh, I, if my father were alive today, oh, he would be having so much fun with this. He'd be watching all these videos you know, and, and he'd be, you know, he'd be doing Rando's conversations and he'd be going to he'd start an estuary in Whitensville and he'd, you know, be traveling and all of this stuff. And, you know, it, it he died in 2013 and none of this stuff really started kicking off until 2018, 2017. And, but then part of me wonders, hmm, because we don't know the, we don't know the, 
the membrane between heaven and earth right now. <laughs> and so even though I'm a Protestant and and I'm not about to pray to saints and I, and I know I know Catholics and Orthodox, I know you don't really pray to saints. I know that. OK, so just 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 talking Protestant talk here. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know the degree to which. My father is involved in any of this. Is he? Isn't he? I don't know. How can I know? And I'm not even going to speculate, but because all of this is so much what my father would have loved makes me suspicious. <laughs> makes me suspicious. And all the Orthodox are like, four years and Paul Vanderclay is going to be Orthodox. Or... Hank Cruz is out there. Just a matter of time before Paul <laughs> joins Rome. <laughs> I do think it is interesting. And the more I, since having my being captured by Christ moment, the more I notice how um, in many ways, um, Lewis is, is something like has been, kind of the neutral Vir Virgil for all of these different Christian thinkers, um, no matter what side of the fence they're on. I think that is fascinating. I don't understand how that happens because it's almost impossible that that sort of character arises. And he seems to be uh, nearly universally uh, adored by people of different, different faiths. And like, how does that even happen? Um, and I think there's something to that. And I do think, by the sounds of it, so yes, I, I would say Virgil, Lewis was your Virgil, but it does sound more like your father was the actual Virgil along this whole trip. Yeah, yeah. Could very well be. So I had more questions. It doesn't matter. But um, like one of these weird questions, like, was what does it mean to be a Protestant today? Which is kind of like a maybe a lame question. But I think that, I think that's a good question. I'm going to say it. I think the pro the protest has ended, and we're contestants, not Protestants. But that's just my for us new guys. <laughs> that's not bad. That's not bad. No, but, no, no. And so, and and yeah, I just want to say something too. In that, you know, this conversation to me is a great example of why the corner is important. Because you can give me an interview, partly because you've watched so much of my stuff yeah. and you've learned a lot about me over this time. And also because you're not in a hierarchy. You know, when you, I mean, one of the things that we're, we're learning as we're watching interview after interview after interview after interview on the internet is that so many of these interviews, they're all the same. They're all the same because, and, and that's okay because they're, they're created by the hierarchy. They're created by the map. Now, without all this status, now again, like you've got some status, Chad, you know, you, you know that. Then I've got a little bit, and you know, we've all got our little bit of status. Status isn't itself a bad thing. No. Hierarchies always develop. It's all fine. But a conversation like this to me is... I don't know. We'll see what people think, but I've found, I've I've so enjoyed this. I have no idea what kind of questions you would answer, you would ask, 
when when someone like from a, a magazine or you know they always they always ask the same questions we see this with jordan peterson interview everybody asks the same questions and after a while it's like you know map territory map, you know. <laughs> but yeah. i knew with this interview it was not going to be map territory that you know and and also you're you know what what's good also about the corner and the relationships is that we might all like each other and have relations with each other. But what that means is that we can also have differences with each other mm -hmm. and, and name them and, and tussle about them to a degree. And I mean, it's, it's, it's the rough and tumble play that Jordan Peterson and Rafe Kelly want to talk about, because mm -hmm. what we learn is where, you know, the kid pushes the father just so far, but then steps over line and the father says, ouch, no. And so we're all doing this recalibration with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's that only happens with community and doesn't just happen in these media hierarchies where it just all becomes the same and it all becomes sort of captive to a particular spirit. So mm -hmm. that's that's why this is so good and, and so helpful, in my opinion. Well, thank you, Paul. Um I really appreciate you taking your time to spend with me. Uh, if you have any, do you have any last thing you'd like to say? Well, remember, Embody, there is no agency. I don't know why we say there is no agency because the whole point of that, that's just, I mean, people don't under, I mean, Grizz <laughs> is a genius. He really is. He really is. It's just, it's see, the funny thing is, is people like think, I want everyone to think I'm a genius. And in most cases, well, some people, are weird and they think that and it's like well most geniuses real geniuses don't fit in and they're not understood some of them are never understood and most of them die in obscurity but when i look at all the craziness that grizz does with his branding and this and that it's like there's some real there's some real stuff under that that's going on and yeah some of it is some of it is just craziness, mm -hmm. but that's always the case with people too. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, and, and I, I watch, I, again, the, I've, I, again, think myself, think of myself as being just so richly blessed by all of you. And, um, and so it's, it's, yeah, I just feel, I feel very blessed by this whole thing so beautiful well thank you paul i love you all man right. all right don't hang up well after i end the recording we can talk about how we want to handle this recording all right sounds good thank you everybody bye